Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign from scratch for you to run for your group. Now, as you know by now, we're building this campaign for the Deadlands Classic System, so if you don't have the books and you don't have a used bookshop around that carries role-playing games, you might want to check out the Pinnacle Entertainment Group's website at peginc.com and pick yourself up some PDFs. The two books we use pretty much every week are the Player's Handbook and the Marshall's Guide, but any of the books would be helpful for you in running your game. Okay, so before we get into this week's build, I need to address something that's been brought to my attention over the past week or so. If you've been following this build closely, you'll note that I've been building the adventures based on the fact that Jonathan O'Toole, aka the banker, has been hiring the group to head off to do these various tasks, or hits. I mean, let's be honest about what we're doing here. What's been noted to me, and what I'd actually forgotten about if we're being honest, is that there's the possibility that the group actually took O'Toole out during their initial stop in Denver. If that happened, then how are they being hired to go do these various hits? Of course, if you've been running the game as we've been writing this, you probably figured out a solution that just kind of handles all of this. And I do have to apologize for dropping the ball on that, but uh, kudos to you for getting it done for your group. For those who aren't to that point yet, or if this is just an entertainment podcast, let's work out a quick fix, shall we? There's actually two fixes we can use. First fix, don't sweat it. I mean, the group can follow the names that they got from O'Toole to get to each of the members of the board that they need to get to. Because if you note, as we've built this, every time they take out a board member, they get a name for at least one more board member. So they can hit everybody in order and pretty much get whatever they can get from them. And they would still get to the point we're at now. The big difference here is that they wouldn't be getting the payouts that they've been getting from O'Toole to, to do those jobs, so they would be probably needing to find other ways to make some money. But hey, you're creative, you'll figure it out. The other fix that we can use, which keeps everything pretty much as it's been, is we drop in another interested party. Let's call her Melissa Zane, and she'll approach the group at some point to talk business. Now, we can leave a lot of the details up to your interpretation, but the short story is, is that the board has ruined her family. You can insinuate that they killed her father or her husband or her mother or her dog. It doesn't matter, really. Long story short, she's got a lot of family money and a long revenge streak, so she's going to pay the group to take out the board. You put her in the place of Mr. Norwood, or you know what? Leave Mr. Norwood in the game, and he's acting as the middleman for, for Ms. Zane. However you want to do that. The amounts of money would be the same as if you still had O'Toole alive and running the group. So there you go. Now, the other major deal, if O'Toole is dead, is that he's, we had him as part of the Deadwood part of this adventure. So obviously, if he's dead, that, that can't happen. So we'll just pull out any references to O'Toole from the Deadlands part of this, and we'll go along our merry way. No harm, no foul, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Regardless of how they're coming up with the names, the group has Atwells, so they didn't need that extra incentive anyway. I mean, I'm sure by now the group is taking them out one by one. Of course, if Ms. Zane is bankrolling them, it'll be the usual six grand rather than the big amount that was, that was offered when we constructed. The group will still fail, but at least at this point we've addressed it. Obviously, as I said, if O'Toole's not a part of this, you have to adjust all of the Deadwood conversations. Doesn't change the fact they still get the note from The Undertaker. It just means that rather than uh, Atwell being told to do what he wants with O'Toole, you can have him just be, have him, you know, if you really want to be, yeah. So if, if you really want to be twisted or take a take on it, you can have The Undertaker say that once Atwell's done what he's doing here, he can do whatever he wants with Seth Bullock and he can take over Deadwood for himself. If you want to add a little extra layer of intrigue into it, go that way. 
Okay, so, I mean, most of you probably, if you've run this, you figured out a way to cover this. But I figured, you know what? It's a giant plot hole. I need to address it before we move any further along. We've done it. So let's build. You know how we do things, though. First up, we have to recap what we did last week. When we began the last build, the crew was headed for the Atwell compound to scope it out. They were met about a mile and a half into the trip by five Sioux, a shaman, and four men who were accompanying him. The shaman wanted to help the group, and he provided them with a map of the layout of the compound, including the positioning of all the snipers. Even better, it differentiates between daytime and nighttime positioning for those snipers. He also suggested that they head in at night... The group either went for recon or they just flat out decided to check things out at night. Believe me, the daytime recon would have given them the same idea. They went in, figured out Atwell had left in his flying machine, checked out his cabin and found a slaughterhouse. Then they checked out the other barn. It had, depending on how things went in Albuquerque, either four walking dead and a Wendigo or two walking dead, Zebediah Thomas and a Wendigo. And if he's still alive, Jonathan O'Toole tied to a table and dying. They finished off what was in the barn, but only got a name and a city out of O'Toole before he passed. The name is Cheng Li, and the city is Sacramento. And yes, if O'Toole is already dead, they got that information out of the cabin. I mentioned that, so there we go. The group burned bodies with the help of the shaman and his men, then headed back to Deadwood to get a decent night's sleep before they headed out. We ended the build before we decided what was going to happen next. So, let's get to building. I mentioned last week when we were ending the build that the group basically had two choices. Head back to Denver to report their failure to Mr. Norwood or head to Sacramento to follow the lead they got. Now, with the new information we put in before the recap, here's how I can see this working out, potentially. If the group's doing board hits on its own, they would have gotten the Chang Lee information from the cabin, so they'll probably be headed to Sacramento. If they're working for O'Toole or for Ms. Zane, they're going to head back to Denver. If your group is heading straight for Sacramento, you can skip down to the section where we take the group to Sacramento and adjust it to the route from Dakota to Washington and then down to Sacramento. For everybody else, let's pick up with the group getting off the train in Denver. They'll get word to their contact. I'm moving forward with Mr. Norwood since my group's still working with O'Toole, or at least they were anyway. However, four days go by and they still don't get an answer. After four days, they should have a pretty good idea that something has gone south and they're going to start throwing theories out there. For the record, the correct theory is that Bronson Atwell has had something to do with it. That becomes obvious on day five when they get a message sent to their hotel. They get word from the desk that they have a message and it's an official looking envelope and stationery. It's official stationery of the mayor's office of Denver with Jonathan O'Toole's name on it. However, the message obviously isn't from him. Duh. The letter itself is wet and it's because there's blood all over the letter itself. Here's what it says. I told you we'd be seeing each other again. Since you took away my meal ticket, I've decided to take yours. You want to settle this? Come find me. Bronson Atwell. Wrapped in the letter is an index finger, supposedly from their contact. Their group will definitely need a game plan now. They've got two possibilities at the moment. Sacramento, which they found out about from Mr. O'Toole, and Billings, Montana, which they got from their contact in Dodge City, Kansas. Since O'Toole gave them Sacramento as basically his dying statement, it should occur to the group that he did it for a reason, so Sacramento should be their next choice. If your group is having issues coming up with that, have someone the group has seen with Mr. Norwood in the past show up and report the following. It was the darndest thing. This big flying machine landed on the mayor's front lawn and a couple of rough looking types got out. They grabbed Mr. Norwood, shoved him inside and he took off. They were headed due west. Now, the reason that should be the clue is because heading for buildings would be a due north direction to fly off. Sacramento is due west. 
So the group basically has its marching orders. No money and no other information, but they've got marching orders. They can catch a train almost directly there, but it loops through Salt Lake City on its way to Shanfan, which is Deadland San Francisco surrogate. From there, they can catch a short train north to Sacramento. It takes about six days with slight layovers in Salt Lake City and in Shanfan. Now, they're still wanted in Salt Lake City, so if you want to put some heat on them there, go ahead. Regardless, they should really mind their P's and Q's while they're waiting there. They're not wanted in Shanfan, but it would still behoove them to not get out of line. Shanfan is triad territory, so getting out of line could cause them a whole lot of headaches, and those are headaches they do not need. Again, I'm not putting any extra encounters in during the train ride, but if your group is one of those who needs constant encounters, well, drop one or two in. Same type we've done in the past. Train robbers, gunslinger, template, a white chip for each success. Taking all of that into account, let's pick up with our group arriving in Sacramento. The 1876 population of Sacramento was around 20,000 people. Now, I'm not using my usual deep dive information of math to figure this out. Total population in 1850 was 10,000, so I doubled it. Not my usual stuff, but it's going to work for our purposes. I mean, I'm just trying to get the point over. Sacramento's big. Let's just go with that. So let's set the scene. The group's getting off the train in a very large city with no idea where they're going, other than they're looking either for Bronson Atwell or Chang Lee. That means they're going to have to do some legwork. Now, one of the first things they notice before they get out of the train station are large signs warning that the opening carrying of firearms within the city limits is strictly prohibited. So if your group isn't already doing it, they should probably consider concealing whatever they're going to keep on them. They're also going to need a hotel because they're going to need a base of operations. You can name the hotels whatever you want, just have some varying options for price. My group tends to go from the nicer types, so it's going to run about $5 a night. I'll probably go with the Grand Palace as the name for my group's hotel. Once they get their lodgings out of the way, it'll be time to hit the pavement and figure things out. One thought might be to see if any flying ships have landed in town in the past couple of weeks. Through a bit of investigation, they can find out there are actual landing pad type places on the northern outskirts of town. Three of them, in fact, each of them with room to store about 10 flying machines. Set it up so the last place they check is the one with the juicy information. Let's call these places the landing pad, the aerodome, and the flying machine corral. You decide which ones they hit in which order, or let them decide. Like I said, the last one will give them what they want. And for the record, a lot of flying machines come into and out of Sacramento on a daily basis. So there have been a lot of machines coming and going in the last couple of weeks. At the final stop, they run into a young woman, Diane Carver, who happens to run the place. She's more than happy to run down the list of flying machines that have come in the past couple of weeks, especially if they slip her some money. $20 is good, $100 would be a whole lot better. She does note that one machine came in from Denver about a week and a half ago, paid for a month in advance. She notes that it was a night deal, so my night guy was here. Told me a couple of guys got off and they had someone between them. Told me it looked like they'd arrested somebody or something. Head covered with a bag, cuffs on the wrist. Some tall drink of water flashed a badge and told him it was a U.S. Marshal business. The description of the badge wielder is an exact match for Bronson Atwell. Once they realize that's what they're looking for, Diane checks the paperwork for the landing. They left their contact address at 4500 North 45th Street. She points out, that's a warehouse about seven blocks south of here. Almost as an afterthought, she adds, I don't know who would willingly go there, though. A lot of bad stuff happens there. She can't get into too many specifics, but notes that rumor has it that one of the big players in crime around here has their headquarters there. She doesn't have any more for them, but uh, let's be honest, they've got enough to act on. 
So the group will probably want to do some recon on the area before they decide what to do next. And I hadn't given much thought to the time of day it is when the group gets to town. So let's go ahead and just let fate decide. Roll a d4. One or two, it's daytime. Three or four, it's nighttime. It's not that big of a deal to the overall storyline, which is why I'm not making a big deal out of it. The entirety of North 45th Street is warehouses. In fact, the warehouses take up about a dozen square blocks of space going over multiple streets. Some of them are marked as various blacksmiths and businesses, and it's obvious that the businesses who use these warehouses are using them for storage. However, as they get closer to 4,500, they realize something isn't right. First couple of dead bodies should be a hint. They're Chinese, and they look like they got hit before they even knew what hit them. Throats ripped open, carnage everywhere. This carnage continues into the yard of 4,500, where a dozen more bodies litter the yard. Some look like the ones outside, but others look like they just took shotgun blasts to the vital areas. The doors to the warehouse stand wide open and a trail of bodies lead in. They lose track of how many bodies are here, but they lead to one that they were hoping they wouldn't find. The body of Mr. Norwood, which looks a lot worse than they'd imagine, finger is missing and strips of his skin have been removed. And with the amount of time they'd had him, there were a lot of strips. He is dead without question, but it's the other body that draws their attention. It's a middle-aged Chinese woman who's been both shot in the head and had her throat ripped out. There's a note on her chest that's stuck there with a big knife. You took too long. I got bored. Until next time, Bronson Atwell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just did this to your group. I mean, I did it to my group too, but you know, just want to be clear on that. So why did we do this? I'll get to it in a minute. First, let's let the group do some searching because you know they want to. However, let's also note that this many bodies is going to be drawing some attention at some point, so the group needs to hustle it along. Give them one search check, target number of 10. For every success, they find one thing, and you'll decide what they find from this list. Sign, says Amani Lato, Snake Oil Salesman, Billings, Montana. A note that reads, Ye, while I'm still technically a member of our board, I've decided to step back from an active role. Too much heat and too many people looking for us. I would suggest you do the same. I'd hate to lose another friend, Amani. Another scrap of paper with a word written on it, Minneapolis. $10,000 in cash, various denominations. As they find the last item they get, they can hear a commotion from the street. Fortunately, it's not too hard to find another way out. I mean, this is the base of operations for a criminal gang. More than one way in and out is required. This one leads behind the warehouse and takes them down about a half a block west. They come out at the edge of the warehouse district and see some businesses and homes around the street. They also don't hear anyone coming from behind them, so it looks like they got away clean. At this point, the group needs to plot out their next move. They no longer have someone providing them with money and information, but they have one board member name and city left, so they could always head that way. For now, they might think to head back to see Diane Carver to see if Atwell came back for his flying machine. Just as they get there, they see the flying machine heading off towards the north and Carver waving her arms and yelling, you just can't leave like that. She tells the group what they already know. Atwell and two other men rode up, got out, cranked up the machine and got it airborne. They seem to be in a real hurry and they tossed her a bundle of $100 bills as they rode past. She has no idea where they're going and tries to dissuade them from chasing, reminding them that he can fly that thing places you can't ride, and things start getting hairy about 40 miles north of town on the ground. If they want to chase them, let them, and we'll break that down in a few minutes. However, if the group decides sanity should be the answer, what they'll probably do is head back to their hotel rooms, spend the night, and head out in the morning. 
Okay, so they don't do the smart thing and they decide to chase the flying machine. First off, they're probably not on horseback, so it's going to be a real short trip. If by chance they are on horseback, they'll get about 40 miles north before the fun begins. They'll hear the howls before they see them, but it's a pack of werewolves coming at them. It's enough for one werewolf per group member plus an extra. If they survive, great, but no chips. Sorry, I'm not rewarding bad decisions. You can do that if you'd like. And with that, the flying machine is G-O-H-N gone. And the group will probably do what they should have done in the first place, which is head to their hotel and settle in for the night. Now, when morning arrives, and I have to say arrives because I play a game with a bunch of four-year-olds. If you get it, you get it. If you're not, you're better than I am. Anyway, when morning arrives, the group needs to figure out their next move. Again, they've got a board member they can track down. So that's where they really should be headed. Plus, since they probably know she's not active, maybe she'll be willing to give them information rather than hardline them like everybody else they've dealt with. So they can either ride there or they can take the train. Let's be honest. Train's a smarter idea because of, you know, going over the mountains. They can head up to Seattle, then catch another train to Billings. It's about a four-day trip with an hour or so layover in Seattle. Again, if you want to drop some stuff on your group, especially since they haven't had any encounters during this session, go ahead. I'm not, mostly because my group is getting to the point. They just want to get to the point of the story. So I'm really just going to try to give them what they want. If your group likes a slower pace, hey, go with that. More power to you. We will, however, fast forward to Billings, Montana, and the group getting off the train. As they get their gear and horses off the train and start to head out, they're met by a couple of gentlemen who seem to be troubleshooters of a sort. They eyeball the group and then they approach. Now, the group can make whatever checks you'd like, but the two things they need to know is while their sidearms are obvious, they're also obviously keeping their hands away from them. Also, the body language indicates they're there to talk, not fight. The men are identical twins, white males who appear to be in their mid-30s, just under six feet tall, about 170 pounds, fire red hair, fire red goatees. They wear black clothing, with the exception of the white shirts they're wearing, dusters, vests, boots, whole nine yards. And like I said, their sidearms are prominent, but their hands aren't near them. One of the men nods and indicates he'd like to speak with them, but kind of indicates off to the side. They move out of the flow of traffic. The man introduces himself as Hank Lawrence. The other man is his brother, Herb. They admit they work for Amani Lato, but he also states that she asked us if we'd meet you here and invite you onto the ranch. He doesn't know what she wants, but she's asked them to assure the group that she means them no harm, and she just wants to discuss everything that's been going on the past couple of months. If the group agrees, the Lawrence brothers will lead them to where their horses are tied up, and they will lead them the four miles out of town to the ranch which is huge, by the way. If the plantation in Little Rock was supposed to be large, it looks like a postage stamp in comparison to this. The rough guess is this ranch takes up a couple of square miles, bare minimum. There are cattle and sheep all over the place with huge mounds of hay spaced out and watering ponds around as well. Multiple large barns are spaced out around the property, and there are three rather large houses they can see in right around the center of the property. Hank will talk to the group, and he's trying to be as friendly as he can as they ride. He'll note that the property does well, and that Ms. Lotto donates large amounts of money for causes in town. He'll admit that she used to have strange visitors around all the time, but we haven't had any of them around here in quite a few months. And again, they can make whatever checks they want. He's telling the truth. And it's also apparent he's not saying anything that he's not supposed to say. So obviously if he's saying it, it's okay for him to say it. You and I both know he doesn't have anything to hide. He has been told to be open and honest. Okay. There, there's your behind the screen. Once he gets through everything, you can fill it in with small talk about the weather and raising livestock, or you can just kind of fast forward. 
Do you need to know we're in the month of October in the northern United States, so nights are starting to get cold. By now, it's getting into the afternoon, so this is the warmest it's going to be today, and it's fairly chilly. Smoke rising from the house they take the group to is a welcome sight. And for those groups who seem to constantly have their heads on a swivel, they see a number of armed men on horseback riding around the pastures, but they appear to be watching the livestock, not the group. The four men on the porch of the house, on the other hand, are obviously on guard. However, when they see the Lawrence boys, they stand down. Herb Lawrence offers to help the group to get their horses settled in, while Hank speaks with the guards. One of the guards steps into the house, they're gone for just a couple of minutes, and then they come back out and they give Hank the nod. The horse is taken care of. Herb takes up his post with the guard while Hank leads the group inside. He offers them a spot to hang their coats, then heads into the parlor, which is just off the entryway of the house to the left. Inside, an older woman, her gray hair pulled into a tight, probably uncomfortable bun, sits politely sipping tea. There are enough chairs in the room for each of the group to take one, and while she offers the group a drink, she also acknowledges that she understands that they probably won't take her up on it. After all, you have no reason to believe anything, I say. Much like some of their previous encounters, this is what you'd call a feeling out session. And she'll go first, because I can assure you, my group usually makes these people go first. She'll tell the group she's aware of their adventures in Little Rock, Albuquerque, and Deadwood. And she's heard about Sacramento, though she's very well aware that they're not responsible for what happened there. She doesn't seem concerned about the deaths of O'Toole, Monroe, or Thomas, but the death of Chen Lee seems to bother her. She'll just explain. Lee was a friend for a long number of years. We came to the board at the same time and worked together on a number of things. Insofar as the others, O'Toole was always too big for his britches. Thomas was crazier than an outhouse mouse, and Monroe was a racist, sexist pig. It's obvious she's almost happy those three are gone. Insofar as herself, she states simply, I haven't had a hand in this game for quite some time. For me, it was never about controlling people. It was about organizing various business types under one umbrella to increase everybody's profits. After a time, it became obvious that O'Toole had plans to take over the entire continent. Monroe and Thomas were able to hold him off for a time, but they had to eventually consolidate their various forces to protect what they already had. Atwell, he was always a wild card. For a very long time, he was the one everyone else would use when they needed wet work done and didn't want it to tie back to them. That flying machine of his makes it easy for him to get into someplace quickly and out even quicker. Lee and I, we grew disillusioned real quick, and we made a pact to focus on our business enterprises and stay out of the fight. Undertaker... None of us know much about him, and that's the way he wants it. I mean, I personally know of three names he uses, but I've never, ever actually been able to track him down under them. James Madden, John Mitchell, Elson Smith. She makes it clear 100% she's perfectly contented to stay on her ranch and never have anything to do with the board again. To that end, she's willing to give the group something they've never gotten before. The location of the board's meeting place. She notes that we used to meet there four times a year to conduct business, but over the past year, we've communicated via courier because of all the fears that everybody had about backstabbing everybody else. It's an address. 15 Adams Street, Cheyenne, Wyoming. She notes that it, it is a house, though she has no idea who owns it. In fact, the only people she's ever seen there are the other board members. Well, all of the other board members but Undertaker, who she admits never showed for meetings. She also admits that he never seemed to be worried or interested in the business. But if you were to ask Lee, she'd tell you he was probably the power behind the throne because there'd be times that those of us who wanted to act in a more cautious manner would be outvoted by the others, but our ideas would go into practice. That's, that's gotta be Undertaker. If they ask about whose board identity she has, she states that Undertaker is it, 
But as she noted, she's got three names for him and no city and still has no idea what he looks like. To communicate, she sends messages to the address in Cheyenne and gets responses a couple of weeks later. Once the group has had time to share, she does have something she'd be interested in hiring the group to do, should they be interested in making some money. She notes that she's been noticing some of her livestock disappearing from the northernmost part of the ranch off and on for the past couple of weeks. It's not enough for her to suspect rustlers, since a rustler would probably take an entire herd's worth, or at least three or four, not one or two a night. Instead, she notes that her men have noticed one or two cows missing over the course of a couple of nights total. She's not sure what's doing it, but she cannot afford to send her men out to handle it because while they're good with firearms, they're not the people you are. They haven't seen what you've seen and they haven't done what you've done. Yes, she will admit she's sucking up a bit, but notes, you've dealt with the walking dead. They haven't. You've traveled this country. They haven't. Like I said, they're not you. She offers $1,000 per group member up front to deal with the issue, plus another $1,000 per person once they've dealt with it and reported back. And yes, she does think there's something weird doing it. She's just not sure what. Once they agree to do it, she'll walk him out the front door where she'll nod to Hank and ask him to escort our friends to the northern fence line where we keep losing stock. She'll shake each of their hands and wish them well. Hank walks with them to get their horses and he gets his own. Once the group's ready, he leads them up the northern fence line. Once he's at the right point, he dismounts and leads them to the actual fence. He points out a spot that's been repaired again and again and notes that we have to fix the damn thing a couple times a week. Whatever it is keeps busting a hole in this and taking cows. Now, the ground is all trampled under on this side, so picking out specific tracks is going to be difficult. Hank offers to lift a couple of the fence board ups so that the group can ride their horses over. And then he waits for them, obviously, to all get across, and he puts the boards back in place. He nods, wishes them luck, and then sets to making himself a small fire to keep warm. It's obvious he's been given the order to wait here for them to come back. Once they get a half a mile or so north of the ranch, they can pick up the tracks they're looking for. They're bipedal, but larger than a human or cow. They also notice some drag marts in the ground, like from claws or something. If someone thinks to mention a Wendigo, they're right, but you don't have to tell them that. They'll have to ride about two miles north before they see the cave. It's sunk into the side of a natural earthen mound, and they see the carcasses of several deer out front. Let them set it up however they want. Here's what you need to know. The tunnel runs back about 200 feet before it turns into the actual cavern the creatures are in. We'll say about 800 feet by about 800 feet. There are four Wendigo in there, along with the bones and carcasses of a lot of deer, cows, and gods only know what else. So, run it. Once they succeed, give them each a blue, red, and white chip, plus a point of grit, and they can return to the ranch. It's getting dark as they return, but Hank pulls the boards and lets them back in. He escorts them back to the house, and they meet with Ms. Lotto. She's saddened to hear about the Wendigo, but gladly pays him the agreed-upon money with an extra $500 per person due to the extra risk you had to take. She also offers for them to stay in the staff quarters on site if they'd like. If they do, they'll have to double up, but there is room for them. If they choose to return to town instead, they can get rooms in the Ranch View Inn for 3 bucks each for the night, and then they can leave in the morning. Either way, this is where we stop building this week. Before I wrap completely, I know I mentioned something about, yes, I just did this to you when I um, mentioned that we killed off Chang Li. Why did we do this? Okay, if you look at every step we've taken to this point, we've basically put the board member that they need right there on a platter for them to take out with information that's easy to give to them and other things. Atwell's the first time they've really lost. I wanted them to lose again because 
I don't know about your group, but my group, they've not seen a lot of loss lately. They haven't taken a lot of hits lately. To have the prize snatched out of their hands, to me, it's supposed to do two things. One, keep them humble. Now, you can remember that you know you can have the best plan. You can pull it off perfectly. You can do everything right and still lose. Second is I want to get them back on their toes. I want them thinking more. And that's where this all comes from. Not trying to do it to be a jerk. I'm not trying to do it to be a horse's butt. Just trying to do it to keep this the story fresh and to keep the group on their toes. If you disagree with it, that's fine. Go ahead and make the adjustments that you feel that you need to make to make it work for your group. I'm just doing what I think is best for mine. Simple as that. All right, so that's the build session for this week. Next week, we're going to pick up with the group headed for Wyoming. Plus, we're going to have a campaign recap for my game. And this is going to get interesting because we have a couple of returning players this week. Well, all but two of them are going to be returning, but one we haven't talked to in a while. So this is going to get good. Okay, so as I first announced last week, myself and the rest of the Bad GM Productions crew will be live at Archon 45, September 30th through October 2nd in Collinsville, Illinois. We'll be promoting the podcasts, the website, and talking about all things gaming. Stop by our table, say hello, and we'll have a little something for you to show our appreciation. You just gotta tell us you heard about it here. Again, that's Archon 45 in Collinsville, Illinois. Check out their website, archonstl.org for more information that's a-r-c-h-o-n-s-t-l dot org it's friday as we release today's show which means there's also a new episode of role-playing history for you to check out we cover the history of role-playing games in great depth and this week we examine the storytelling system and the palladium fantasy role-playing game so if you're a gaming history geek like me this is the show to check out role-playing history is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website badgmproductions.com net all of the deadlands classic materials we use in this show are the trademarked copyrighted properties of pinnacle entertainment group and are used here for entertainment purposes only if you're interested in these or any of their fine products check out their website at peginc.com bad gm's campaign build along is a production of bad gm productions check us out on facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash bad gm prod twitter at bad gmp youtube bad gm productions you can email us bad gm productions at gmail.com or you can hit us up online the website bad gm next week we take our group to wyoming and we check out the progress of my group that's next week, partner. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the gaming table.